Welcome to the Arts and Sciences Matters podcast, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. This is your host, Anna Varela. Our goal is to bring you insights from researchers working on a broad range of social, cultural, and scientific challenges. Today's guest is John Horgan, a psychology professor who researches terrorism and political violence. Dr. Horgan is a member of the research working group at the FBI's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. Over the years, he has interviewed nearly 200 terrorists as part of his work. So, Dr. Horgan, what have you learned about how people get involved with terrorist groups? I've learned that it's complicated. Uh, I, I, saw, I, I think I feel the more I study terrorism, the more complexity I find. Um, hmm. uh, and it's frustrating when people ask me questions about, um, uh, you know, why do people become involved in terrorism? Um, not, not frustrating for me, but frustrating for them when I struggle to give them easy answers. The study of terrorism is relatively recent, and that's that's surprising to many as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so we have found a lot, but there's also a lot more that we need to discover. So should I ask you what we know about why people join <laughs> sure, terrorist groups? Sure. Um, the, the, easy, the, the short answer to that, not the easy answer, I think the short answer to that is that we find lots of different people becoming involved for lots of different reasons. We have been so far unable to find any clear profile that binds them together. But we do know that one thing that all terrorists share is a an unwavering belief that they have been chosen to make the world a better place. Hmm. So you've spoken with many terrorists in your research, um, but you say there's not really a common personality profile. Is there something that sets them apart from the rest of us? Yes, there are several factors that distinguish them from the rest of us. They are action-oriented, number one. They are, um, uh, they're exposed to the same kinds of news that all of us see. We all see stories of injustice and oppression and, and, and inequality around the world. The terrorist is someone who wants to take action on behalf of those uh, that are oppressed. They're not simply satisfied to sit around and say, oh, isn't this terrible? They want to get up and do something about it. Now, how they do that isn't entirely clear, whether it is of their own volition or they are recruited, but we do know that they are not merely satisfied with sitting around talking about problems. They come to believe, one way or another, that violence is the only way to solve this problem. And they are um, perfectly fine about justifying that to themselves because they are very good at comparing different kinds of moral outrage. Moral outrage is one of the uh, other drivers associated with terrorist motivation as well. So the terrorist will tell you, somebody has to do something, somebody has to stand up for the rights of those oppressed, and if you're not willing to do it and you're not willing to act, then don't blame me if I use violence in pursuit of some kind of solution. So that suggests there might be a common worldview among terrorists? There's, there, there certainly is a common worldview. Um, the, the, the really tricky thing for us as researchers is to figure out where exactly that comes from. The evidence seems to suggest to us that the worldview is something that they nurture and develop the more time they spend um, uh, in one of these groups. It's not something they necessarily have at the outset. 
So at the outset, we see a lot of people who they kind of gradually drift into terrorism. Hmm. Uh, whenever I, I sit and meet with a terrorist, um, he or she will typically explain what they have done in these big, grandiose ideological terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's nine times out of ten, that's a reflection of the kind of propaganda that they're fed in the movement. But if you, if you, if you peer through that and, and, and take that account apart a little bit with them, you'll see that it's some of the, the, the some more mundane motivations are often at play. Um, adventure, excitement, camaraderie, searching for a better life. Very often it's just about escaping boredom. These are hmm. the kinds of things that, that will, will drive someone into the clutches of one of these movements. And then afterwards it's the politics, the big ideas, the, the ideologies that seem to, to come around it. Have you found uh, that white supremacists and Islamist terrorists share more in common than, than sets them apart from each other? That would be my view. I don't think it would be a view held by anyone in either of those two camps. I think mm-hmm. they would be uh, outraged at the suggestion. Um, they, th- there's more in common um, than I think any of us would like to accept. Uh, and certainly um, uh, one of the reasons why we study terrorism in the way that we do is to try to see what patterns and similarities exist. So they are all doing what they do because they, rightly or wrongly, come to believe that it is their role to bring about this, this, this better future, as I said earlier. They come to embrace violence um, they come to accept the fact that it is necessary for revolution or social change or some, some, um, uh, some, some, some global change. And they have, there are far more similarities than there are differences, for sure. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, my job as a psychologist is to sort of try to peer through the politics and the ideologies and the labels and just to try to explain and chart the development of these uh, actors um, uh, using basic human psychology. In, term, in those terms, uh, the dynamics, the emotions, the, the behaviors aren't any different. Interesting. So 18 years have passed since the September 11th attacks. What have we learned since then about preventing terrorism? That's a very hard question. Uh, I think on one level, we haven't learned an awful lot at all. Uh, we still hear the same kinds of talking points being espoused by politicians who pretend to have easy answers to what in reality is a super frustrating and complicated problem. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it astonishes me why a lot of people out there still believe that torture is an effective way of, of, of dealing with terrorism, for example. There are so many of these, these, these myths that we have yet to um, uh, completely demolish. So, so on one level, those of us who study terrorism and those of us who, who obsess about trying to uncover its mysteries, if you like, we have learned a lot about terrorism in the, in the last 18, 19 years. I think it's slowly, um, we're, we're slowly seeing some of the, 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 the findings from that research enter the policy world, but we've got a long, long, long way to go. So what more can government or society do to prevent people from becoming terrorists? I think one of the one of the immediate priorities is to make it easier for people to report suspicious behavior. Uh, one of the questions I often get asked um, in my research is, well, you know, what you asked me at the beginning, why do people get involved in terrorism? I say that a, a far more immediate question is to focus on how people get involved in terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it is, an, it is a, a, a very pervasive myth that we can't see terrorism coming. And yet, if you look closely at terrorism cases, 
time and time and time again, you will see accounts of friends, family, co-workers, uh, fellow students who, who, who noticed that something wasn't quite right with uh, their, their, their friend or loved one, but they chose not to report it. Mm-hmm. We need to embrace the responsibility to make it easier and more convenient for people to report uh, suspicious behavior. What about the role of the internet and social media in helping these groups recruit people to their organizations or even encouraging so-called lone wolf attacks? The internet has completely transformed the way we think about terrorism. Uh, I mean, terrorists rely on projecting a much larger footprint than they would ordinarily be able to uh, realistically convey, and the internet has helped them in terms of propaganda. It has helped them look 10 times stronger than they might really be. And we've seen... Um, a, an extraordinary effort by movements like the Islamic State to radicalize and recruit online. I think we are still playing uh, catch-up with um, uh, the ways in which terrorist groups have exploited the Internet for these purposes. One of the more promising moves I've seen lately has been this so-called deplatforming effort, whereby mm-hmm. key individuals and groups, radicalizers uh, and others, um, have simply been kicked off of platforms. Mm-hmm. Some would say it's a little too late, uh, too little too late. But uh, I would say, well, at least it's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Now, some but, can, uh, but uh, sorry, sorry, I beg your pardon. A tremendous uh, array of very complex issues there that relate to freedom of speech and privacy. And I, I don't think we've really begun to have those conversations yet. Right. Right. Uh, in some countries, uh, they've adopted deprogramming or de-radicalization programs to address terrorism. Can terrorists be deprogrammed? Um, I would say they can, but not necessarily through these programs. I've hmm. visited many of these programs firsthand in places like uh, Somalia, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, you, you name it, I've seen them. And De-radicalization is an interesting word, um, uh, and that, that's, that, that's the, the, the main label used to characterize these programs. I think the, uh, the popular idea is that a terrorist gets captured, gets put into one of these programs, and then comes out a, a new citizen. It doesn't really work like that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the inevitable outcomes of people becoming involved in terrorism is that ultimately they will become disillusioned. Sooner or later, Hmm. the fantasy won't live up to the reality. They'll get burned out. Killing someone isn't as they imagine it, but they will eventually turn away from it. A lot of the so-called success stories that I see attributed to these de-radicalization programs is little more than people that are already deeply disillusioned. I think one of the really promising features of, of these rehabilitation efforts is that they are making what appear to be genuine efforts to rehabilitate and reintegrate these former terrorists back into the community that they once claimed to represent. And that is, that is no easy task, but uh, I look at it as, as, as a, a new and pretty creative way of, of thinking about counterterrorism. Hmm. And what led you as an academic to study terrorism? It was an accident. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to be able to say that there was a big Hollywood story behind it, but uh, I was just taking a psychology class one day, and uh, my professor, whom I didn't then realize was one of the world's leading terrorism experts. He was a, 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 a tremendously smart person, but, um, but woefully disorganized. He would come in, and, and every single principle that he tried to teach us in psychology, he would, he would illustrate using a terrorism example. Mm-hmm. And, and so we were essentially getting a psychology of terrorism masterclass in what was supposed to be a social psychology class. And I was blown away. 
I mean, I remember, I literally remember where I was sitting in the lecture theater um, when this professor explained to us that you don't necessarily have to be quote unquote crazy or psychologically afflicted in order to do very extreme things. Hmm. Um, it's it's very often it is just as one terrorist said it's a thousand little steps that that gradual progression into extremism, and that that idea just completely blew my mind. I never thought about problems in that way before, and uh, that's what got me hooked. Hmm. And what do you see as the value of academic research into this subject? I think. I think we have a very long road ahead, but I think, but I think our responsibility as academics is to, um, and again, I'm paraphrasing from one of my colleagues, is to simply make terrorism known. Uh, I take every opportunity I can to speak about terrorism to uh, the public, to practitioners, to the intelligence community. There are so many myths out there and assumptions that we all have about terrorism. And some are justified, but more often than not, they are unfounded, and they're largely born out of... Uh, fear or prejudice or, or 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 just you know mischaracterization through the media. So I think our first and foremost responsibility as academics is to strip all of that away and to and to 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 gather the data, to gather the evidence. You shouldn't care what I say about terrorism. All that should matter is what evidence I can bring to the table to support my viewpoint. And I think that's I think I hope rather that's where we're going. So what do you think is the single biggest mis? conception that people have about the work? That's also a very hard question. Um, I, I think there, there, are, there are a lot, for sure. I think one of the biggest misconceptions people have is that there are easy solutions to this. Mm-hmm. There just aren't. And I know that is, that is a, a very frustrating thing to hear. And, and when I speak to uh, public audiences, people say, well, Gosh, you're such a typical academic. That's that's exactly the kind of thing you know you would say. And I say, well, well, yes, but that is that is the outcome of 20 years of research. That that's not a failure on our part. That's not uh, an indictment of of academia. The outcome of the research is that we have not found one single cause, and we're not likely to find one single solution. So I, I would say, while we continue to try to do more work and to illuminate this problem. Beware those who profess easy solutions. This is not a problem that can be um, uh, wished away by some stroke of a pen or some domestic or international element of foreign policy. It just doesn't work like that. Mm. So we're going to ask one final fun question. Uh, What's your favorite book or movie that touches on your research? I love that you're asking a fun question about terrorism. So, so points for that. Um, <laughs> there, there, there are, gosh, there's too many to, um, too many really to mention. I, there's lots of books, lots of movies, lots of documentaries that I could recommend, and I'm, I'm happy to recommend them. I think one that really stood out to me was a movie directed by Steven Spielberg called Munich. And it centers around the events of the 1972 Munich Olympic Games that were held hostage by a then unknown terrorist offshoot known as Black September. Mm. Munich traces the efforts of an elite Israeli counterterrorism unit in Europe um, whose one purpose was to identify and hunt down and assassinate those responsible for the massacre at the Olympics. 
uh, I'm sure a lot of you, a lot of the listeners will be familiar with those events. And I would say there is a companion piece to that movie called One Day in September. Mm. And it is probably, for my money, the single best documentary that has ever been uh, made so far about terrorism. So One Day in September is about the events of the games themselves. Mm-hmm. Munich, the movie, is about what happened after the game. So I know you only asked for one, but those are, those are two. Interesting. Well, thank you uh, for spending some time with us today, Dr. Horgan. This has been the Arts and Sciences Matters podcast, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. You can follow us or let us know what you think on Twitter at GSUArtSci, and you can find more episodes on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Thank you for listening, and we hope you subscribe so you won't miss out on future episodes.